And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. When I was in seventh grade, I played the fortune teller in Thornton Wilder's The Skin of Our Teeth. I had this turban, super dramatic makeup, and had this vaguely Eastern European accent of dubious origin. It's what I thought of when I thought of a fortune teller. So Robin Raskin isn't that, not even a little bit. I mean, for starters, she's a New Yorker. But when it comes to being able to see what's coming in the tech industry, she has absolutely got a lock. In 1984, she wrote a column for InfoWorld magazine that launched her into a career with one of the most powerful publishing houses in technology, Ziff Davis. She went up through the ranks of PC Magazine, eventually becoming an editor, and she was one of the very first women in tech publishing and leadership, something that carried a lot of weight. She had to keep family and work very separate. That was ironic, because from PC Magazine, she launched and led another Ziff Davis magazine called Family Computing. She has seen pretty much every trend coming. After Ziff Davis, she worked with the Consumer Electronics Show for 15 years. And while she was there, she carved out a series of special tracks, all of which have turned into monster categories of their own. Things like, you know, digital health. Her latest venture takes her deep knowledge of tech and events and brings it virtual. And in this podcast episode, we talk about leadership, we talk about curiosity, and we talk about tribalism. And they're all lessons that landed with her, in part due to a fabulous dog named Sam. I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. We're going to get into all of the techie background stuff, but I want to start with the, you with the question where I start with everybody. Which is, okay. when I say to you, the memory of an animal in your life, what's the first thing that comes to mind? My dog, Sam, from college, um, who was one of those dogs where, you know, you could leave him outside your classroom and other than once every spring when, you know, the mating stuff called... He would be there. I, when we moved to New York, I would leave this dog sitting in front of Zabar's and just, um, like, he'd be there. He was just, um, he was just so wonderful and just knew his place. I mean, just wasn't going to leave without me. Never, just followed me everywhere. And, of course, he came with a boyfriend. The boyfriend left, you know. So, but but I got to keep the dog. The boyfriend was a rock and roll roadie. So I got to keep the dog, which was, like, probably the better part of the deal. <laughs> so was, uh, did Sam come, did you enter Sam's life? So Sam was someone else's dog in this relationship, but was he a puppy when you met him or was he a little puppy, older already? Puppy when I met him, yep. Just about a year old. And um, just imprinted, like, Seriously, like a duck. <laughs> and, um, and um, yeah, so uh, retriever mix, big dog, but, like, just the most 
harmless, except he did every once in a while. We lived in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, he ran sheep into creeks, which cost me a fortune one year. He um, got into porcupines a lot, and I couldn't have really afford to take him to the vet. So in the you know late 70s, I sort of gave him a quaalude and pulled the porcupine quills out myself because I had no idea what to do. So it was, um, let's just say I learned the hard way with no money, how to take care of a dog. And um, it was pretty good. I'm having, I'm having a phone call. There we go. Hello. You're not even going to believe that phone call was Jim Louderback. You, can't, you, sh- you should have answered no. it. Did you answer it? Jim no, Louderback? No, no. Jim, I got to call you back. Hi, Jim. It's Kathy. That's hilarious. Wait, Jim, I'm on the I'm on a podcast with Kathy Brooks and you're now on my wristwatch. He's gone. <laughs> That's Jim hilarious. That's amazing. So anyhow. So Sam is this dog who's in your life and it sounds like Sam was really so it's funny. So people always come back with it. You know, sometimes it's a childhood pet. Sometimes it's a traumatic experience. Sometimes it's an animal they always wanted. So it's always interesting to me the phase in your life, the phase in one's life where the where the story kind of pops up. What was it? I mean, did you grow up with pets before that? Did you have dogs or cats as a kid? I did. I did. Oh, a, a horrible schnauzer who, <laughs> right? Who my mother adored. Um, like you know, we. I mean, just we had this howl that was unbelievable. Um, but we always had we always had pets at home. But this pet was kind of special because I really was at that point in my life, I was like the almost famous girl. I mean, I was like a roadie's girlfriend and my job was to take the dog on weekends wherever he was. And um, the dog and I spent a lot of time together and I would walk into like the Plaza Hotel because he was like the roadie for the Rolling Stones and Yes and the Beach Boys. And I would just take this dog into every hotel like I owned it. And um, it was it was pretty wonderful. Um, had other dogs after that. Also really good dogs. One called Winkle, but, um, haven't had a dog in a while because remember I had three kids, ran magazines and had pets and I was so happy to be free. My kids are grown. They're all out of the house. The pets are gone. And I can just, um, you know, when you live in New York city, you can just close it up and tell the doorman you'll be back in a while and, and it gets that, taken care of. Yeah, and so there's something my, interesting. That my life, like, you know, because I, I never had, a, by the time I was in my mid-20s, I had a bunch of kids. And so I kind of never had that. Even in the tech days, I literally would take the last plane possible to be where I needed to be and take the first plane out. Everybody else would go out and party. I'd be doing the homework online, with the, you know, on the phone. There wasn't even an online. And um, so it was It was um, a weird, it was wonderful timing. And I was so happy to be a woman mm-hmm. in a man's world. But I also, you know, it was different times. You did, you did not talk about your family or being a woman. My first week at PC Magazine, I edited some copy, and I remember Bill McCrone was the editor, and I, I wrote a line, something like, some product review, and I said, it was it's kind of like the three bears, not Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, just right. And Bill McCrone called me, and he said, 
we do not use fairy tale analogies at this magazine. Use cars. <laughs> I said, Bill, I don't even have a car. <laughs> I, I don't even know cars. I think that if you want to talk to a wider audience, maybe you should try fairy tales. <laughs> well, especially because fairy um, tales are, we all heard them as kids, whether we're boys or girls. Yes. And, you know, archetypes, right? I mean, they all, and I think, you know, at, at the time, well, I did get that job at PC Magazine in just the funniest way. I mean, it was so early and they needed copies so badly. I had written a piece for InfoWorld. It was like, instead of, I couldn't afford a shrink. So I wrote a piece about my husband who brought home uh, a PDP-11, a terminal connected to his PDP-11 at work and set out to teach me Unix, NROF, TROF, and open my eyes to the world of computers. I thought this was so hard. So I wrote this story called How I Learned About Computers to Save Our Marriage. And in the story, I said, you know what? This isn't golf or ping pong or tennis. This is serious and it can change women's lives because I can see I'm working at home remotely. It's really hard. I'm typing in lines of code. He brings home a printout in the evening, but it's going to happen. And so anyhow, I write this and then Bill Zeff and Ziff Davis call and they say, can you write more like that? I said, Seriously, those 500 words, that's like all I know about technology. And he said, nobody knows about technology. Can you speak English? <laughs> Come on in. And um, I started as a freelance writer and then became executive editor and then editor and, and really learned from just the best mentors, but had to keep my family life different. I, I mean, they said to me, to my face, you're on the mommy train, aren't you? Well, what, here's what's interesting, though, because here comes 1995, and you go to run Family Computing magazine. I did. So I that's like, oh, the iron, oh, the irony. Like, don't talk about family, don't talk about family. By the way, can you run a magazine about family computing? Well, this was my own crazy invention. And it actually, it came from a meeting. I did a talk at Disney, and I held up a CD, and I said this is going to change the world. And it was the time when, oh, Microsoft had those beautiful CDs on Beethoven and Mozart. And there was, you know, all Reading Rainbow and the, the Magic School Bus. And content was so rich. And kids were growing up with computers in their house now. And families didn't know what to do. So I, my pitch was, let me be the Martha Stewart of computing. And then, and so it was a joint venture between Disney and Ziff Davis. Ziff taking care of the tech, Disney taking care of the storytelling. It ended up being way more than I bargained for. I had two bosses, one in San Francisco, one in um, Burbank. And I was like the girl who raised my hand for every project. Like, who wants to build software for the theme parks? And I said, oh, I do, I do. So I was really stretched. I, I, I love that magazine. And um, the sad part was, you know, it's the magazine sort of started just about the same time the internet started, you know? And I remember calling my bosses at Disney. Said, it was supposed to be a magazine that reviewed internet sites that were family appropriate. After like two weeks, I said, you know, this internet thing's happening really fast. I think we have to pivot and make it a magazine about families raising digital kids. 
And that's what it became. And it lasted till publishing's death knell in 2001. But, um, and it was, it was expensive. We had 30 families reviewed every single thing that we wrote about. So we actually had a group think about, um, about what it was like and, and tackled some darker sides of what we saw happening. You know, uh, Facebook had just started and kids were signing up and people were meeting strange people online. And it was just those beginning years of technology moving faster than anybody could fathom or create rules. And that included parents. Now, now fast forward, we're kind of up to the second and third generation of parents raising kids, and they're still tearing their hair out. You know, and I think the problem's have have magnified and well you know, here's the thing that I that, think is really interesting Robin because it's like no matter how much the technology shifts we are still human that's right, right. And no matter is, no matter what we do that the fallacies that make us what we are as a species you know first of all can't be replaced by technology we can augment, we can enhance, we can connect. I mean, you and I are having this conversation courtesy of a technology that didn't exist when you and I first met. And we're literally using fax machines and phone calls to communicate with each other. And, you know, so I have I have a thesis that I'd like to pass by you because I think that you are a, a particularly a particularly poised to have interest in it. So... We are a tribal species, right? That's innate to what we are. We belong in groups. We live in groups. We function in groups. Those groups, you know, interact with others. It's fine. Yeah, we had a two-year little hiatus there, but yeah. Yeah, but even even then, we were clustered digitally and in finding pods, yes. right? We still exist, you know, have to have some sort of uh, relativity to others, you know, to understand our place in the world. It's part of the genetic makeup of, of humanness, belonging. However, what technology has accelerated and wrought upon society is a weaponization of tribalism that has thrown people into silos that not only am I with everyone who thinks alike, talks alike, reads alike, all of the things, but I'm being told that the other silos are bad, wrong, different, must destroy, must kill. But here's the thing. The secret sauce of domestication. So what I know is dogs. And when you look at how dog and man have come together over multi, like thousands of years, we're talking about tens of thousands of years, over 50,000 years that dog and man have lived in some level of symbiosis with each other. The key element of domestication is curiosity in something other than oneself. Curiosity. Not, I'm afraid of you, so I'm going to run away, and not, I'm afraid of you, so I'm going to kill you, not fight, flight, or freeze, but, huh, that's super interesting. Except if these silos are teaching us that we aren't supposed to be interested or curious about others, it's actually devolving us as a species. Yes. And, and, and it's funny you should, I mean, you hit the nail on the head because as we move into Web 3.0, as the um, you know, we don't change as people. You're right. We are at, at our core, we are human and we're about to get new tools 
they're they're here. AR, VR, um, immersive worlds where um, you can dress up your avatars and and second life, but done differently. Yeah, but increased. Um, in, I think tribalism will 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 increase even more if we're not careful. You know, there's a lot of talk now about open systems and being able to transport, but it's still a very closed world. It's, um, it's, um, it's a very, uh, bro world. Mm -hmm. It's, um, and well, uh, here, let me, I want to take that theory. So like, so let's just say there's hope. Let's just say there's, let's just say there's hope. So in evolving, in looking at how dog and man communicate, and the person who I get to be in order to effectively and efficiently lead my dog, to have a dog that doesn't act like an ass in the park, that doesn't like dig holes and screw with other dogs and jump on people and drag me down the sidewalk, the dog that will wait for me outside of places because it knows that its place, its rightful place is by my side and boss, yes, boss, what are you going to do next kind of thing. That if we examine the who we get to be in that sort of engagement, that we can re-energize our human-to-human connections. Interesting. But don't you think in a dog-human, you are still dominant? The human, it's, it's, um, it's not two equals, typically. Well, no, it's, it's not equals. So here's where I'm going with it, though. But the leadership is not one of control. It's not one of top-down mandate. It's one of innate respect because the leader is being the person that they want to lead. So, for example, I don't make a dog do anything. I also don't make you do anything, right? If you come to my home and you open the front door, you see that all the shoes are kind of lined up by the front door. What's the signal of that? take off your shoes or ask, do, would you like me to take off my shoes? Right? So I didn't make you do it, but I set an example, yes. right? You set the, the cues. The I set the cues, cues for it. Mm-hmm. And when, um, when somebody is bringing their dog for an interview at my training facility, they're given explicit instructions, where to park, how to approach, what kind of leash to have on their dog, what to do, what to not do. And all of those things are set in place to create a framework that allows us to have all kinds of freedom inside it because the edges of the container are sound. Yeah. Yeah. You've got guardrails in place that allow those freedoms And consequences for breaking the rules, that there are rules of engagement, right? And that there should be consequences. So, like, I can't just walk into your house and take your stuff. Yeah. So the rules in uh, Web 2.0, one could argue then taking it back to tech, were just all wrong because it was based on, I need your eyeballs. (laughs) And that's really what you're worth to me. And if, you know... You know, you think you're you're engaging, but in fact, you are an eyeball being served ads, and and that that so maybe the guardrails were just totally wrong there. You know, like the the whole so and can we move forward um, where in fact we all participate? But I don't know human nature. I mean, 
look at the metaverse, look at the people in it. It's the big brands who have money to experiment right now. Um, and well, you know, literally you can pay more for your avatar's dress from Dolce Gabbana than you pay for your real dress, you know, or for your, your bling digital jewelry. And so we're setting up again, I think, little different, but again, just uh, siloed people playing in 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 uh, what they think is an open metaverse and won't be. And I don't know if it goes back to, to I'm still trying, I'm still back at the dog thing because, um, I mean, I did always consider myself my dog's Master. Sure. Know. Well, I mean, and obviously the the metaphor. Well, well and the meta the metaphor isn't exact because we're talking about two different species, of course. Um, but it's kind of the basic framework. For example, that in a dog human relationship, I'm not granted respect of leadership merely because I have opposable thumbs and the gift of language, right? And cognitive reasoning. I get to earn the respect of that dog or dogs by behaving in a way that shows them I'm in a different place in the structure. You know, my goal is when my dog's adrenaline is high and there is a high distraction, do I command sufficient respect of that dog so that when I call their name one time, they will sufficiently turn from that distraction and come yeah. to me because that distraction could be a ball that's bouncing out of the park into the street as a simple example. It could be heading toward another dog that I can clearly see is going to be dangerous or right. running to a picnic that's on the, whatever the challenge may be or running out the front door. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that, you know, an animal can get hurt. So, so take this back to your tribes. Yeah. Take, take me, take me back there. So it's, we do have hope. Um, yeah. um, and we've always had hope. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I think, I think humans were flawed <laughs> and, um, and, but um, eternally hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that um, mistakes are fine as long as we admit that we made them and learn from them and move on and shift. Yeah. And um, so where, where I'm coming from, kind of in the, the the whole reason for these conversations, these untethered, if you will, conversations is leadership and what what we really desperately need in this world at all levels, in all industries, in all places, whether it's a barista at Starbucks, whether it's a corporate executive at Disney, whether it's an entrepreneur with a business, whether it's a person in the media, whatever, that we we get to take a stronger stand. Yes. Period. Like that's a, that's a full sentence. Yeah. And, and I think part of, you know, I think flattening the hierarchy um, is really important. And, you know, whether you're the barista or whether you're, you know, you, um, you, you do what you can. I do remember I, Ziff Davis walking into the room. And one of the nicest things they ever told me was I was a born leader. I could walk into a room and command that I had a presence. Have you had um, that always since you were itty bitty? Like when did you yes. first realize that? How old were you? 
Do you have a moment? I won, yes, I won a public speaking contest in fourth grade. Actually, I came in second because I did the stupidest thing it, to get up on the stage. I didn't take the steps. I don't know why. I bounded on to the stage with my hand, but I gave a killer presentation. Why would you not? I would totally have given you the award for that. That's ballsy. <laughs> in my little, my mother was, I, I saw her. Was your mother horrified? Horrified. Because you were that. probably wearing like a little skirt or something and flashed exactly. in your undies or something. Yeah. I just sort of, it just seemed the fastest way up there. They call my name. Efficiency. Got to be there. But I, I won this, 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 um, I told the story of the Kennedy half dollar that went on trails. It wasn't a very good story, but I told it with poise. I saw the audience enraptured with this whole thing. And I kind of knew, um, and you know, in, in your, in your family, I'm always the one that plans that whatever we're making a movie now. I, we, we, we're, we're, this is how we're going to celebrate this holiday. I'm actually leaving from here to go see my son in Denver. And I've planned out this entire extravagant game that we're going to play with prizes. Um, and um, so I, I sort of, I sort of just like it. I, I, and I think it's, what is it me. that, what is it that feeds you? I love being in the limelight. I love adoration. You know, I got the CES lifetime achievement this year, I which means you're half dead. Uh, but, <laughs> but I, <laughs> between my senior ski pass, my lifetime achievement award, I said, yeah, I've taken some beatings here, but, um, I got but, my AARP um, card a couple of years ago. It, I was like, it, oh, it's cheaper just, movies. Yeah. This is amazing. It's, it's, um, but it, it definitely is. And I remember having bosses in my life that, you know, say, I'll give you a raise. That isn't what motivates me. You know, what, what, what motivates me, first of all, it's not just, um, adoration of me, but my adoration for the people around me, mm. like, like seeing them happy and thriving. I mean, I feel like I kicked off a lot of great careers for people who are still, um, still in touch and um that it's um you know and i feel like i did the whole thing with heart understanding you know i think the office i was brought up in was a very different office like i said you didn't talk about families you didn't talk about being tired you you just worked and worked and worked to, and it was a it was a mission um to change the world through technology. And I think I brought some humanness, even humanness to that whole thing, even then. And I just remember I hated HR. So I started a quality of life committee at, at, at PC Magazine where, and to me, quality of life was we could have a concierge in the lobby doing dry cleaning and we could just make life a little easier one day a week at home, even way back then. Um, and the guys, they just wanted, they were on my committee and they just wanted to do a golf outing or paint the bathrooms, you know? And I said, seriously, <laughs> you know, like there, there was such a gap between what we considered quality of life. And I think I was just, it's just too dumb to know any better. Um, but I did, I always sort of, I did say yes a lot. I literally, who, who's going to run the booth at Disney World? I'll do it. Who's going to create the Ziff Davis you know, platform for us all to interoperate? Yeah, interoperate. I'll do that. You know, I mean, I really did love saying yes and raising my hand and to, I'll tackle it. And I think it goes back to what you said about curiosity. When I worked with CES 
Actually, my pitch to them was, let me be your feeder. I will take new people who never would have thought they had a place at CES and show them that they have one. And that was, I started the digital health conference and the high-tech retailing, digital money. And the whole premise was always the same. Take people who you think should be there and give them a home. Um, and and so I, I, I spent 15 years with CES doing that, as well as doing it with other conferences. And, Loved it so much because it also, it's very theatrical. You know, it's giving people, um, we tried to give them white glove service so that they were a success. And we've had so many successes who started in our little tiny area and became, you know, full-blown unicornish companies or were bought and acquired and, and had happy endings. And um, I think, again, going back to the tribal way we started, we created little tribes within CES. With curiosity on how they the could then work. Yeah, and the curiosity. Well, I'm also seeing um, I'm also seeing Sam's influence, actually. I'll tell you how I got there, which is the thing that you said about Sam that resonated for me was that sense of place. Yes. That it wasn't just that Sam knew his place with you that he, you had a sense of place with him. He was always there. You'd come out of class, you knew that Sam was going to be there. The truth is that all we all really want is a sense of place, a sense yes. of belonging, back to that tribalism, back to that comfort of how can I be the leader that you will follow so that we can do amazing things together, whatever, whatever that might look like. You know, you, you mentioned earlier on and before we started our recording as well about being um, a woman in, in technology. When you look at the, the leadership through, through the female lens and, you know, how that has shifted and the role that you get to play now yeah. uh, and, and what that's like, what that's like for you and how that's evolved. So I think, you know, I think you know, early days of PC Magazine, right through CES, I was a good talent scout, and I know you are too. I could spot a winner. And a winner wasn't always a great product idea. Somebody had the stick to itness, somebody that had the framework to succeed. And I love, I'm a nurturer. I mean, I love nurturing that stuff. And I think if you give those people a little confidence, um, you make a few introductions. I spend half my time doing it now. I've totally switched gears at this sort of late stage in my life and became, a, I sold uh, my conference and events company to CES moments before the pandemic, December, 2019, December 31st, 2019, went to CES, ran uh, what I knew would be my last show. And then we were in lockdown. So I felt like somebody was sitting on my shoulder saying, you know, good timing. Um, but I, I still continue to consult for them. And But I started, I got fascinated with how we communicate during a pandemic and what would happen to the event space. And since I had a non-compete against anything else I ever did, I launched the virtual events group. And really at its core, it's a discussion from all the stakeholders about how will we meet in the future. Um, 
and how will we, I felt during the pandemic, I'm kind of ADD in the real world and you see me at CES and I'm running in a million directions. I felt so present during the pandemic that I could have conversations on a level with people that I couldn't before. And even if it was through Zoom and not in person, I think I just took it as another way. You know, as a journalist, you had to master mediums like crazy. You had you started in print and then they told you to do an audio version of the story, do a video version of the story, you know, do a multimedia version. And digital conversations were just like the next extension of that. And so I've been having a blast, like exploring um, how we meet, whether we're going to meet in smaller groups in the physical world with hybrid going on digitally, whether we are going to all meet in the metaverse. I have been to more. I went to Fashion Week in Decentraland all weekend where basically I just bumped into walls and tried on tried on digital outfits and felt. I Again, it's that sense of curiosity. There is something really important and different going on here. Yeah. I don't think it's going to change human nature, uh, but I think that it's going to keep a lot of people gainfully employed yeah. for another couple of decades. Yeah. I guess the, the, the question that's underneath that whole thing is when you think about for so often, I think that the technology industry is like, it's always this or it's always that. It's like, well, but it's like all the blind men and the elephant, you know? It's like everybody's right when you put all of the perspectives together in yeah. the same place. And that don't you feel that maybe we've learned something or like aren't we past the this technology is going to be and everything's going to change? Well, yeah, I think, I think in part we've come to expect it and we shouldn't expect it. It really is a gift. I mean, this conversation we're having is a gift. The fact that I can, I live in New York City, I have a house upstate. For years, if the temperatures went below 30 degrees, we're in the car running up there to hold, hug the pipes and keep them warm. Now we tell you know who, her name, to turn on the heat there. You know, we we can control, we, you, we, we can just do so many things with our technology. I haven't been lost since, you know, Google invented maps. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, and I think we take it, we do take it for granted. I mean, I think I remember all too well when, well, when you printed out trip map, you know, you called it trip, what were they, AAA, and you got your trip quest? Your Thomas trip guides. Yeah. You'd buy and, a you Thomas know, guide, page through. And, and then you went With a highlighter, and you would highlight the route. So much fun. And then you could print out, you know, your map quest things, and, you know, you'd be driving your car and nearly kill yourself, um, and reading your next map quest direction off your printed form. So I think, I think part of the problem with technology is we forget how magical it can really be. Um, and, and um, you know, everybody's looking for the next shiny, shiny. But in fact, um, it's, you know, the mobile industry revolutionized all our lives. Um, to, And not just our lives in the U.S., but all over the world, you know. I mean, in, 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 in developing countries even more so because they didn't have, like, 
the AT&T infrastructure and, tele and landlines. I mean, they just went from nothing to communications, to pregnant women getting the care they need, to doctors being able to do remote calls. And I think, I think there's still so much magic there to kind of um, celebrate, but also to be mindful of as we um, create, you know, kids who are being raised, the TikTok generation, you know, I, I think, and I, I was probably this, you know, I was probably one of them, you know, I think this, um, I think they need to realize, just like they have to realize their banana got grown on a tree somewhere and cost some real carbon and what the effects are of, um, technology on their personal relationships, on their, um, are they being used by big advertising? Are they soaking up carbon just by running computers? We're actually doing a sustainability event for Earth Day. And in fact, digital events burn carbon too, just like physical events, you know? So physical events got smart and they now watch their trucks idling in the parking lot and try and not, you know, and try and use new materials that are recyclable. But Digital has to learn those same things about um, our effect on the planet. Mining NFTs is like crazy waste of energy. And there are some new uh, technologies now that are looking for um, more energy efficient minting of coins. And um, But this stuff all takes power. And so nobody's thinking... Well, there are people thinking about different kinds of batteries, bio batteries. I mean, we have such a long way to go, but but we have to go thoughtfully. And I've told you about AI and digital humans and like we're there. And how do we make it all a force for good and not a force for um, ripoffs and evil and hurt? This is Talk Unleashed. Sit tight. We'll be back right after this. Fear. Uncertainty. Doubt. Also known as the FUD factor. It's that holy trinity that arises when life takes a left turn out of nowhere. Kind of like what happened to me last week. Now, not to freak you all out, I mean, my health is great, business is solid, I've got wonderful friends, and my personal life is the best that it's well, probably ever been. So when one piece of news hits that torpedoes the very foundation of what safety means for me, let's just say it has been an exercise in keeping my shit together. The specifics aren't relevant, but the gist is simple. I have to move, unexpectedly. I, mean, I thought I'd be where I am for at least a couple of years, and suddenly, fear, uncertainty, doubt. Okay, so I'll put it in perspective. My life isn't in danger. I have places to go. My world is safe. And that's not something a lot of people in the world can say right now. So I'm clear that in the big picture, I'm not in any danger, that I'm okay. But there's something really primal that happens when my core belief gets stomped on. It's so easy in that moment to forget that I'm okay. And somehow my reactions to everything get heightened. And the next thing you know, I'm being an asshole to somebody. Being aware, mindful. 
I get to be wholly responsible not just for what I do, but for the consequences of those actions. Most of all, my bad day is not somebody else's problem. What if we were wrong? What if the guardrails the tech industry set were in the wrong place? What if? Makes me think. We all make mistakes, right? I mean, but most of us don't make mistakes that can literally destroy society. But does that make us any less culpable? What if by being fully responsible for all the things that I do, my example can set a path for others to do the same? And maybe, just maybe, that call to action gets heard by those people whose actions can literally destroy society. We're thinking about.